Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis. We are coming to you today from Euphoria Studios here in Manhattan. And I am absolutely honored uh, to have our featured guest for this month, the great Terrell Stafford. Uh, Terrell is a uh, virtuosic instrumentalist. He's a brilliant composer, an esteemed educator, and also an empresario. And we'll get into that uh, as the interview goes along. He was born in Miami, grew up in Chicago and Silver Spring, Maryland. He studied at the University of Maryland, as well as with the great prof fielder at Rutgers University. He has recorded on over 130 albums with the likes of McCoy Tyner, Cedar Walton, Benny Golson, Bobby Watson, uh, John Faddis, the Clayton Hamilton Orchestra, Matt Wilson, Mulgrew Miller, just to name a few. Uh, he has recorded seven CDs as a leader, with his eighth to be coming out this spring, a tribute to Lee Morgan. Uh, he's professor of jazz studies and chair of instrumental studies at Temple University in Philadelphia. He's also the managing and artistic director of the Jazz Orchestra of Philadelphia. Um, he is on his way to uh, the Vanguard, where he's been a member of the, that esteemed band for the last 10 years. Um, I'm, I'm Honored to have him here as a guest, and uh, Terrell, thanks so much for taking time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to be with us. It's a pleasure, Mike. Thank All you. Right. Well, great. Um, let's just jump in and talk about your formative years uh, growing up. I know you were born in Miami and then migrated to Chicago and Maryland, um, and kind of what drew you to the trumpet as a young as a young man? Uh, well, a few things. Uh, there's always been music in my family, and uh, my cousin was a trumpet player, and when I would stay at my grandmother's which would be during the summers when we lived in Miami because they lived in a place called Fruitland Park, Florida, which is maybe five hours away. Uh, so I'd stay with her, and there was always a trumpet in the closet. And she'd always say, make sure you don't go in that closet and don't touch that trumpet. <laughs> That's like the worst thing That's to say right. to any kid. So, you know, as soon as she'd take a shower or do whatever, I'd go in the closet and I'd touch the trumpet. And, and uh, it always felt really great in my hands. And <clears throat> whatever show she would watch it, she and my grandfather would watch at noon, uh, the Star Spangled Banner would play, and there would always be trumpets on there. So mm -hmm. I was like, that's what I want to play. Mm -hmm. And then, ironically, my mother plays trumpet. Oh, so, wow. Cool. So, um, so, you know, I've always wanted to play the trumpet. And I, when we uh, moved out of Miami, we moved out of Miami just because my father was the manager of 7-Eleven stores. Mm -hmm. And uh, one particular month, his store got robbed like six times, and he's still here to tell us about it. Mm -hmm. So my mother's like, you know what, you got two kids. The next robbery may not work out the way we want it to, so I think you should wow. move on. So he got a job for Amtrak, and they started to move him every four years, and that's how we ended up in Chicago, which was great. Mm -hmm. You know, what a, a great town for, for music and everything. Of course, yeah. um, unfortunately, I started playing the viola, which was not my favorite instrument, <laughs> and uh, my viola teacher would beat me, and <clears throat> finally, uh, I accidentally swung my bow back just to block his bow and hit him in the face. They suspended me from school for a week and suspended me from music for a year. And oh, the wow. teacher told my parents he has no musical talent whatsoever. Keep him as far <laughs> from music as humanly possible, his exact quote. So uh, I couldn't play music for a year, um, but I started to play guitar with my math teacher, which is why now I love math. And uh, so after that year was up, my suspension was over, I finally got a trumpet in my hand. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Amazing, uh, amazing path there. That's yeah. very cool. Very yeah. cool. Um, maybe we'll jump ahead a little bit and talk about your college experience at uh, at University of uh, Maryland, and also with Prof Field here at Rutgers. I was particularly interested in. I know your story is pretty legendary, and my son Zach is here today. Uh, he was the first one who told me about it. But but being you know primarily a classical player, and then making that shift, and and how that kind of came about for you. Uh, well. It, it started when I started to play the trumpet. My father actually was uh, went to school at Florida A&M where Cannonball was. So he was a fan of Cannonball and a fan of Nat Adderley and talk about it all the time. And he'd say, you know, you should play jazz, you should play jazz. And, you know, I was like, no, you know, everybody around me is playing more classical music. But, you know, I'd fool around every now and then, but nothing really, you know, serious. I was really dedicated to um, playing classical music. And then uh, when we moved to Maryland from Chicago, to me, it was a really devastating move as a young person because we moved and our house wasn't finished so we lived in this hotel for like three months and uh, I had to practice in this disgustingly dingy dirty basement mm -hmm. of this hotel because people would complain and so I sat there and I was like really is this what I really want to do is practice in a place like this but 
you know, I did it, and then um, when I started to play in the, my middle school there when we moved, the band was just awful compared to the Midwest. I mean, the Midwest, everyone was disciplined. You know, you come in, you had so much respect for your teacher. Um, all the other trumpet players, we'd practice as much as we could, always competing for first chair. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to, you know, Maryland, it was like, nobody really cared. Nobody, like, you really want to be first chair? Cool. You know, <laughs> you play all the parts. We'll just chill out. So um, it was, the, the school system was just so sad. Um, not sad, like, you know, not, not good, but just sad emotionally because, you know, the, the teachers really weren't motivated. The students were, weren't motivated. So my parents did a great thing. They, uh, they hooked me up with uh, three great teachers, a guy named Bob Isle who played in the Navy band, uh, a guy named Fred Irby who taught at, at uh, Howard University, uh, who played in all over the D.C. area, and then Emerson Head, um, who was the professor at University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, well, you know, you study with these three guys, you know, get something that you can from all three and, and follow that path. And all three were classical guys. So when I started at Maryland, that's what I wanted to do, but my parents said, you know, you want to be this classical musician, but, you know, you're not going to really, you're not, I don't know if you have the talent, you know, you're not going to really be able to make it in this musical world. So you should have a backup and be in education. And I've always struggled with that because, you know, I said, okay, you want me to be an educator as a backup to not being a performer. So you actually want me to teach your child to play music, but not be a great performer. Just mm -hmm. have a backup, you know. So I struggled with that. So when I got to Maryland and I started studying with Emerson Head, I would go to all the performance majors and say, man, how much do you practice? Oh, I practice six hours a day. i go to the ed majors. How much do you practice? Oh, if I can get in a couple hours. Oh, my classes are so hard. So I said, you know what? From this point on, my first year, I'm practicing six hours every day. So I, you know, managed my time so I could do so because I wanted to put in the same time. And, and Emerson Head was great when I was there at school. And then... Um, Emerson started to not be so happy with my amateur because I play off to the side a little mm -hmm. bit. And uh, <clears throat> so he's pretty much said, you know, man, you need to move this over. You don't move it over. I'm not sure what your future is going to be. So as soon as he said that, I was, thought to my parents, I was like, oh, my God, they were right. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to be a teacher. I'm not going to teach if I can't play. So uh, when I graduated from Maryland, I quit trumpet. I quit for like three or four months, and I became a computer programmer. Um, and then after that... Um, I met Wynton Marcellus at a concert, and I wasn't playing at all. And he pretty much, at this after this concert, he said, um, man, you should go check out Professor Fielder at Rutgers, mm -hmm. you know, uh, before you put it in, the, you know, in the closet. And I went and checked, and Prof sat me down, and he said, son, play this. He put, like, Goldman number four in front of me. And I played a little bit, and then after I finished playing, he says, well, your tone is pretty bad. Uh, your articulation's rough. Um, there's not much flow to when you play. <laughs> and I just <laughs> I was like, you know what? So he's like, but I can help you. If, mm -hmm. you. if you are open, I can help you. So I said, sure, let's, let's give it a try. And I started to take lessons with Prof um, before I got in school. And he was smart. Prof was smart. You know, my first lesson was 125. My next lesson was 150. My next lesson was 175. Finally, he got to be like 250 for a lesson. I said, Prof, I can't afford to study with you. He goes, then enroll in graduate school. You get a lesson every week. And so I did. I enrolled in graduate school. And when I was in school at Rutgers, um, I was pretty focused. I wanted to, to, to major uh, in classical. But I remember I went to a master class of Bud Herseth. And in this master class of Bud Herseth, who's my hero? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I bow down to Bud Herseth. I, I went to this master class, and, and uh, I said to Mr. Herseth, I said, what does a principal trumpet do outside of the orchestra? What do you do? And he goes, well, the most humbling time for me is on a Sunday. I get out of church and I go play in a Dixieland band. He goes, oh, man, so humbling. But, you know, principal Chicago Symphony is nothing, but that Dixieland band is rough. <clears throat> I said, really, you play jazz, Mr. Herseth? And I was like kind of anti-jazz at the time. And he goes, yeah, you know, I love it. And he goes, my best friend is Clark Terry and blah, blah, blah. And so he still went on. And um, so I always kept that in the back of my, my mind. So... I figured when I was going into graduate school at Rutgers, I'd audition for the jazz program. What the heck, you know? Mr. Hurst said it would make me a more, you know, well-rounded musician. And so I had my classical audition in the morning at Rutgers, and I had my jazz audition in the afternoon. And I got a letter three weeks later saying, you've been accepted to the classical, you know, department and rejected from the jazz. I didn't know anything about jazz when I started grad school. And then when I was there, uh, one day I was working on 
a piccolo. I was playing with a faculty member uh, doing a recital, and I was playing Let the Bright Seraphim. And so she started to sing it, and boom, 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 boom. So I imitated her, boom, 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 boom. So the next part was supposed to be, boom, 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 But she went, boom, 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 I was like, and so she's like, um, let's try that one more time. So uh, I was like, I can't follow you. And so she ended the rehearsal. She called Professor Fielder and she said, you know, you sent your best student and he can't even, you know, follow me. You know, I'm not, I'm not playing the part exactly, but I would need to. So Professor Fielder, you know, prof called me and he just said some words to me that cannot be said on this video right now. Um, so I went in the practice room and started practicing, you know, different ways to play this, you know, so I could get it under that side of piccolo. And uh, when I was working on it, there was a sax player next door to me who I'd play something like, I'd stop, and he'd go, I'd stop, and then play a little bit more, and he'd copy, I'd play a little bit. And I went over and knocked on the door and talked to the guy, and it was David Sanchez, great mm -hmm, player. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about jazz and he's saying things and he told me about Kenny Barron and you know, she go talk to Professor Barron if you want to play jazz. I said, Well I'll go talk to Prof first and I went to talk to Prof and Prof said, No, no jazz for you. Absolutely not. You know, you still get tired when you play the Brandenburg. Until you can get the trumpet together, no jazz. So Kenny Barron actually I went to his studio and he's like, It's between you and I. You know, mm -hmm. and this was like my second beginning of my second year of grad school. So what was I, twenty one, twenty two, something like that? And he started to show me some basic two five. Sit down, learn this. You know, go check out Dizzy. Go check out Miles. Go check out Clifford. You know, to start and and uh, learn these songs. Come back and play it for me. And, and that's how it all. Mm. That's how it all began. What a path! Amazing. That's like I mean, especially hearing you now. You're you're such an incredible improviser and fluid uh, in your playing. It's oh. like for to start that late. Not not late, but you know, at that point in your life, it's that's uh, amazing. Yeah. Mm. The, that road, that's great. Um, let's talk a little bit about maybe some of your early jazz influences. I know um, I did, my son and I had the good fortune of hearing you that this past spring as you did the Lee Morgan uh, week at the Vanguard, and I know that record's coming out. I would imagine he's on it, but I think Clifford Brown is certainly a person that has been, but not to put words in your mouth, can you talk about some of the, at that point, who were the, the trumpet influences that you had jazz-wise? Yeah, I mean, I would say Clifford Brown was probably... Uh, one of the first main influences, but he was so intimidating, I shied away from Clifford. Um, so the first person I actually gravitated to was Miles. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, coming from a classical world, uh, improvisation is the most daunting thing ever placed in front of a classical musician, you know. Um, and so that was very intimidating for me, you know, not having something in front of me to create. And with Miles, even though there's so much complexity to what he does, I mean, it sounds so simple, but um, I could at least understand, like, the notes he's playing. So I started to learn Miles solos over, like, a blues or rhythm changes and things like that, things that I could use when I would go to a jam session or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and I still really love Clifford. <clears throat> and then after a while, I started, after, you know, transcribing some Miles, I really started to get into Clifford. And I actually met his teacher, Boise Lowry. And... Uh, I started to study with Boise, hmm. um, and that was great. I mean, <clears throat> you know, he'd come and he had a system of improvisation, and we talk about that a little bit. But he would basically tell Clifford stories and talk about sound and what Clifford was into and and different things, you know. And because I love Clifford so much, I started really um, working on different articulations to kind of express myself because that's what I felt that Clifford mm -hmm. did. And because of that Clifford Brown <clears throat> uh, influence. I also became super fascinated in, in drums and the relationship that, you know, the drums and trumpet have always had, not only from like a big band lead perspective, but actually from a solo perspective and, mm -hmm. and how to communicate with rhythm sections, so on and so forth. Um, so, so yeah, Clifford Brown has been a huge, huge influence. And I love math. You know, I was a math minor in college, and Clifford Brown loved math, so I'm like, wow, yes! <laughs> um, one day I'll play like him. But, um, but I, love it. I love his sound. I love... I love his, of course, articulation and, and how he can navigate through changes, but I loved his, um, his melodic content. You know, um, years ago I did this record date with this, with this pianist, Stephen Scott, and, uh, and on the record date was Ron Carter and, and Elvin Jones was on this record date. And um, 
after the, the one of the sessions was over, I was kind of heading out, and I said to, you know, Elvin Jones, Mr. Jones, I really love your playing, and Ron Carter was right there. I said, Mr. Mr. Carter, I love your playing. And he said to me, he said, man, he goes, you know, he goes, you know, on this date, no, I'm solo. He goes, I haven't heard you solo yet, but I want you to think about something as you walk down the street tonight, going back to wherever you go. Think about melody. He goes, melody is a lost art. And so, you know, he started to name like Kenny Dorham and, you know, Blue Mitchell and Art Farmer and all these guys and, of course, Clifford. And he goes, you know, go check out check out the notes that everyone else is playing, but check out the melodies that nobody wants to pay attention to. Mm. Check out how to approach music from that point of view and let that, let that be the premise that you follow. And those words from Ron Carter years ago have touched me ever since. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, well said, yeah. Yeah, Clifford, I mean, it's obviously one of the great ifs in music, what he would have done. I mean, he left so much in such a short period of time. If mm -hmm. he lived, it would have been even more incredible, no question mm -hmm. about it. Um, let's talk about a couple of your, you know, important mentors in your life. And um, um, you already mentioned him once, but the great Wynton Marsalis. I mean, he's obviously done so much for everyone and the music in general. Um, and also Bill Cosby, I know, has been an important part of your life. If you could talk about those, those sure. great gentlemen. Uh, well, when I met Wynton and he, you know, um, guided me to Professor Fielder, He's always kind of been there for me. Uh, I, I'll never forget a uh, really quick story that um, when I was studying with Professor Fielder, I, um, you know, I decided I wanted to play jazz and didn't want him to know. So I was going to hide it from him, right? So Bobby Watson, I met Bobby Watson, and Bobby says, can you go on this tour, you know, of the West Coast? And I said, yeah, of course. Little did I know that the tour was like three days before my comprehensive exams and my, my, uh, recital. So, you know, I'm asking around to people, you know, am I going to be able to pass out of these exams? Or like, man, if, you know, if you're, if you're a classical guy, if you're going out with an orchestra, the school will let you go. But if you're going out with a jazz group, no way. So I went to the dean and said, you know, I'm going to be going out on the road with the Robert Watson Chamber Ensemble. So <laughs> I went out on the road with the Robert Watson Perfectly Chamber. Said. <laughs> and so after this tour, you know, I go back to the the dean in the fall, and he calls me in, and he's like, so how was the Robert Watson Chamber Ensemble? I said, man, it was great. He goes, what kind of venues did you play? I said, uh, you know, chamber ensemble venues, you know, <laughs> churches. He goes, oh, okay, so uh, what was the instrumentation? I said, chamber ensemble, you know, strings, brass, uh, woodwind, uh, percussion. And he's like, huh, well, would this be it? And he slides his paper back, and it was like, cover of downbeat, horizon burns, you know. <laughs> so at that point, uh, they kicked me out of school, you know. They're like, academic dishonesty, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I left school, and, and, uh, and at that point, I get a call. You know, Professor Field was like, you know, you know you're going to get a call. So I never forget, either Wynn called or Wynn had someone tell me, you know, man, that's really jive, you know, Professor Fielder's done this. And so I was like, you know, to, to, for the fact that Wynn Marcellus thought I was jive, you know, because of what I did. And so uh, I called Prof, and I was like, okay, I'm going to come back to school and finish. You know, I'm really sorry for what I did. And. And I did that, and you know, from that point, whatever you know, I've done some subbing in the Lincoln Center band, and Wynn's always been there to, to guide me. And just we did something for Lewis Nash at the Nash, and we kind of played together. And we were talking about concepts, and he was sharing, you know, everything to me is a long tone, and just just concepts to me that have always meant a lot. And then when the mayor of Philadelphia kind of came with with uh, his folks, and they said, "We want to start a jazz orchestra. Would you be artistic director?" I said, mm, nah, I don't think so, you know, because, you know, being director of jazz studies of Temple and, and chair of instrumental was just too much and trying to play. And and so um, I said, you know what, but I'll call Wynn. So I called him, and he goes, man, you should do it. You mm. should absolutely do it. He goes, I'm about to write a book, which is out now, kind of the history of the Lincoln Center. He goes, but I'm going to send you my first chapter that I wrote. Just don't share it with anyone because the book's not out. But I want you to read it and get back to me. And he sent me this chapter, man. I read it, and how he got started, and you know, the you know his whole concept of what the orchestra was going to be about. And he said, "Feel feel free to do anything." And I pretty much did everything that was in this chapter. Mm -hmm. He also said, "If you need anything from Lincoln Center Library, it's yours. You know, whatever wow. you need." <coughs> and so, and so we had a gala event last year, and Mr. Cosby was the MC, and when came down just to help out. And he was just so generous, and we'd done a bunch of interviews together for it. And the words he said, I'll never forget, just always really kind and always really supportive. And, you know, education means a lot to him, but making sure he 
stands behind his word for whom, whomever he helps is, mm -hmm. really, is what he does. And uh, I really respect that. And then some years prior to, you know, um, meeting a lot of these jazz musicians, Tim Morfield, my best friend, and I used to play with Shirley Scott. And uh, we met Shirley Scott at this club, and Shirley with Mickey Roker and Arthur Harper was the group we traveled with. <clears throat> and then one day, Tim was like, hey, man, there's these auditions coming up for the Cosby Show. I was like, wow. And he goes, man, would you want to do it? And, he, and I said, what show is it? He goes, you know, Ms. Cosby's going to do this show in Philadelphia called You Bet Your Life to bring revenue back to the city because Philadelphia is really hurting. Mm -hmm. I was like, of course, let's do it. So I went in for this audition, that he and I, and, and the band that went in was the band that was chosen, you know, mm -hmm. Shirley Scott, Arthur Harper, Mickey Roker, Tim Morfield, and an alto player, Tony Williams. And we played three shows a week, every week with Mr. Cosby. And he would sit down and talk to us. I mean, it, I, I, I feel if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be teaching now, especially where I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Shirley Scott, you know, came to me and she goes, hey, there's this teaching position at my school, Cheney University. Would you be interested? And I said, no, I just want to play. And uh, so Mr. Cosby said, hey, man, Shirley Scott's looking for this. Would you be interested in teaching? No, nope, I just want to play. So after time went on, you know, uh, Tim and I, Warfield and I, when we do the show, when the cameras would come near us, we had a connection with the camera guy. We'd take him out for dinner and drinks and stuff. <laughs> so when the camera would come near us, he'd wink and we'd lean over. Bam! Ching, ching! You know, you get a little check just from being on the air. And so Miss Cosby's like, you know, every time you and Tim lean in the camera, you know who pays you, right? <laughs> goes, so what do you think about teaching? I said, I think that's a good idea. You know? And so I started to teach there, and then he was really supportive when the opening came up at Temple, and he's just been in my corner ever since. He was part of the gala last year, and he's come out to Temple for different concerts. I remember he came out to, Clark Terry came to Temple to play, and <clears throat> Clark, we were in the dressing room backstage, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, appears Bill Cosby, and he says, who's MC for this show tonight? I said, I am. He goes, you're fired. <laughs> I'm doing it. <laughs> so he comes in, and he MCs the evening, and gets people laughing, and Clark Terry comes out, and then an intermission, um, Mr. Cosby comes back, and he goes, who plays lead alto? Where's that, that lead alto player? So I was like, I do. <laughs> and so Mr. Cosby says, here, this is for you. And he gives the lead alto player an alto saxophone. And he goes, this was Jackie McLean's, and Jackie blew the sharp out of it, so you don't have to worry <laughs> about it. <laughs> and he gave this kid this alto saxophone. Oh, yeah. and, I mean, just, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, um, And ever since, he's been supportive. So he's he's a he's a... Great stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's I've I've uh, heard that from so many folks about when that he's so generous and giving and and certainly what he's created at Lincoln Center is just unbelievable. unbelievable. I mean, I, there's only you know who could who could do that? I mean, he's he's the guy. You know, it's, he it's is the guy. Tr just truly amazing. Yep. Um, let's shift up to your now uh, your playing career as a professional. Um, in the '90s, you you became very in demand as a jazz uh, artist and sideman. Um, can you share kind of some of those, maybe some of your favorite memories of that time? I know is that when you started working with McCoy and and Cedar a bit, and, mm -hmm. and just all the experiences that you had. You were are you know getting so busy at that point. Um, maybe you could just some of the memories that you have of that that decade. Sure. I mean, my my most and fondest memory would probably be Bobby Watson, you know, mm -hmm. because um, I was playing at a club. This is the time when um, Professor Fielder forbid me to play jazz. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and this is before I went on the road with Bobby. I was playing a jam session because Kenny said, you know, you, you can come to me for lessons, but you got to be out playing. So um, I was playing this jam session at this club in D.C. called Tacoma Station. And this guy, Paul Carr, ran the jam session. He was really gracious to me. Take the train down from Rutgers on a Tuesday. He picked me up. We do the gig. Let me sleep on his couch. I come back Wednesday for orchestra. Get back in time, you know, for orchestra at the school. And uh, during that time, man, I, I met so many people. That's where I met Tim Morfield and so many great musicians in D.C. But one night in particular, <clears throat> I met Bobby Watson, and he came in and played. And and the night that I met Bobby Watson, um, he said to me, he goes, man, I'm playing in D.C. this Friday. You know, I'm here early to do interviews and some workshops. Why don't you come hear me? And I said, great. And I said, uh, who are you playing with? He goes, I'm playing with McCoy Tyner's trio. I said, oh, my God. So I went to hear him, and, I mean, it was fabulous. And then after the show, I went backstage, and McCoy is sitting there, and I'm like, 
wow, Mr. Tyner, it's a pleasure to meet you. Hey, man, yeah, it's good to meet you, Dan. <laughs> and so I didn't know what to say, so I was like, man, hopefully one day we can play together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, time time went on. I, I kept playing with Bobby and meeting different people, playing in different different places. And and uh, I started to, you know, McCoy Tyner called me one day. And when he called me, I just started at Temple. Um, and my commute, I was just, you know, I was doing too much. You know, mm. my system mm -hmm. couldn't handle it. And I shut down. I got pneumonia. Mm. And so after getting pneumonia, I couldn't do anything for a month because of pneumonia. I have asthma now. All this crazy stuff came. So I'm sitting at home, getting better, but I hadn't played the trumpet in a couple of weeks. And I get this call. And uh, I was like, oh, hey, man, it's McCoy Tyner. I said, oh, really? <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Click. Because, you know, John Faddis would love to call and prank, you know. Right. So I thought it was like a John Faddis prank. Oh, really? Ha, ha. Click. <laughs> and then, uh, so, phone rings back. Hey, man, it's McCoy Tyner. Oh, oh, Mr. Tyner, how you doing? And so he's like, you know, my band's going to Japan. Want to know if you want to come. You know, we're going to be going in a month. And uh, that was my inspiration to get out of that bed, wow. even though my lungs were jacked up. You know, get out and start playing the trumpet again and start trying to get in uh Going out on the road with him was just incredible. I mean, I call him like a gentle giant because he's so big in stature, so big in musicality, but he's so approachable when it mm -hmm. comes to uh, when it comes to music. I'd ask him musical questions about, you know, what can I do to play better? What can I do to work on this? What can I do? Um, and what was it like to play? You know, all those kind of questions. And I never forget uh, the touching time with McCoy was we were in Italy, and uh, uh, and he called me and. And he goes, hey, man, you want to go do one of these boat tours together? I was like, well, sure. <laughs> and so we were like, we're in Venice going down. And, you know, we were just talking about life, you know, on this wow. boat. And it was, it, was, it was fantastic. So, um, you know, and, and musically, it's so powerful. It's so powerful that uh, it was overwhelming for me because, you know, we're all trying to gain knowledge and we're trying to gain information that can support what we do musically. But he push me in ways that I have never been pushed to the point that it was uncomfortable because mm -hmm. I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't express myself with all this information he was giving me mm -hmm. and then it was so powerful that I couldn't match the energy at all so I, I remember how frustrated I was for a while because you know I was always trying to match 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 and then once you just sit back and you see the genius of McCoy you can match but if you just let him lead and you follow your path, the music is just like, mm. it just happens, you know? Mm. Um, so that was really, really powerful for me. And, and, and people like Victor Lewis, you know, really taught me a lesson about rhythm sections, you know? And I, and I think um, that's kind of been my, my path, you know, listening and studying to rhythm sections to help develop as, a, as an artist, as mm -hmm. an improviser. Mm -hmm. It's not surprising at all. I mean, you, every time I've heard you, you're so locked with the rhythm section. Like you're having a conversation with the rhythm section. It's so intuitive. So it's it's nice to hear that that you know you were thinking along those lines for so long. That's uh, that's probably how it's come to so, to arrive at such an incredibly high level. Mm. Um, Let's talk about the Vanguard Band for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, one of the great jazz ensembles anywhere in the world. One of my favorites. And I had it's been a, a minute since I heard you guys, but I heard you guys last year, and it was just. I'm so inspired. I mean, the uh, the ensemble playing is better than ever. The soloists are all, you know, world class, just amazing. And uh, anyway, maybe you could just talk about your feelings about the band. I know the trumpet section is just spectacular with Nick Marchione on on lead and and Tanya and Scott and yourself. It's uh, really one of the great trumpet sections anywhere in the world. But maybe just talk about you know the lineage of the band, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, the whole what what it means to you and what your experience has been like playing with the Vanguard Band. Well. Um, it's probably the most intimidating day of the week, Mondays are. Yeah. Uh, and it has been since I walked into the Vanguard to play in that band. Um, the reason why it's so intimidating is, um, I mean, the musicianship that, that Mel and Thad possessed is just incredible. And that spirit is inside of the band. Every time you flip a page, you can feel that spirit in the music, how tattered the charts are and how, you know, in some ways how very little information is on the charts when you play it you know it mm -hmm. all comes from the history of the mm -hmm. different you know sections lead players they've had in the band which to me is like 
you know, if you think about Ellington, you know, you can't really step into Duke Ellington's band and just play what's written. You know, right. there has to be an understanding of where it comes from. And so I compare the genius of, of that and Mel to that of, you know, Ellington or, or Basie. You know, it really takes some studying of, of the lineage of the music, but also understanding who those leaders are and who they got in the band and why they got them in the band. So when I started to sub in the band in 1996, um, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable to be in a room of musicians of that caliber, and I never wanted to solo. That's the last <laughs> thing. I, and I still feel that way now, honestly. Really? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to solo. If, if, uh, if I could just come in and, you know, raise my level as, as a section player and as an ensemble player to the levels around me, I'd feel really good um, in an evening. And, you know, I'm blessed and grateful to have the opportunity to express myself by soloing. But um, there's so many fantastic solos. I mean, it's, it's great. You know, Scott is there and he sounds fantastic and all the other great soloists, you know. Um, but the thing that, that led me to the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra was uh, Bobby Watson. <clears throat> you know, I was subletting his place one summer and I was saying, well, you know, what can I do on a Monday? He goes, man, you should go down to the Vanguard Jazz, you know, the Vanguard and check out the orchestra. And in particular, you should check out the lead alto player, Dick Oates. He's fabulous. I mm -hmm. said, really? He goes, yeah, you should check him out. You should meet him. And, uh, you know, I went down, I sat there and heard the band. I was just like, oh, my God, because I'd never really played much big band. You know, I didn't play at all in college, mm -hmm. you know, so I didn't have any big band experience. And my first experience in a big band was with Bobby Watson's big band, and John Faddis was playing lead, and John Faddis gave me a hard time all the time. So <laughs> um, I figured, let me go listen to some other bands. And when I sat and listened to this band, I understood what he used to yell at me about. You know, it made sense, you know. Um, and uh, so it was, it's been incredible since 1996 to this day. And, you know, I love Nick and Tanya and Scott. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's about music now, but it's, it's more about relationships and community, you know. Mm -hmm. It reminds me, stepping in on a Monday night when I see the other guys, it was like going into Bradley's after the gig. You know, you see all the cats. You're like, yay, what's up? Only difference is, you know, going to Bradley's, you don't get to play. You know, you mm -hmm. get to sit and hang. And, and that was great as well. Sometimes you play there. But, you know, every time I step in the club and I see the it's like family. Hey, man, how you doing? And it makes the music. It, it's something about the music that's different as opposed to stepping in a band. You're not really familiar with many people. And I think, you know, Thad and Mel had that same element. They knew everybody. They put everyone in that band for a reason. The chemistry was there for a reason. So it's it's incredible to mm -hmm. play in that section. I'm touched to this day, and I'm honored to be a part of that band. That's awesome. Yeah, I know even just as a, as a fan of the band and as a listener, I, you feel that when you walk in the Vanguard. It just feels like the spirit of the, of the music is in there. It's really well said on your part. And uh, and I totally agree with you about Dick Oates. I for me for my money the best lead alto player anywhere in the world. Oh my just, god, just spectacular and uh, just a great musician all, all the way around. But his lead alto playing is just on a whole nother level. Whole spectacular. Yeah. Um, well, let's shift again over to uh, your solo career now. Um, you have seven CDs out as a leader, and your eighth uh, coming out in May. The the Lee Morgan. What's the title of that CD? Is do you have a title yet, or is it? Yes. Um, what is the name? Brotherly love. Mm. Brother Obviously. Lee. L E E. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With the uh, Philadelphia <coughs> connection and everything. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, maybe you could talk about, certainly talk about that project as well, but just talk about maybe your approach uh, to being a leader. And there's some obvious differences from being a leader as opposed to being a sideman, but just kind of how, you, how you've uh, shaped your career as a solo artist. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I think as a, I don't, I don't separate too, too much, you know, playing as a sideman and playing as a leader. Um, just because, you know, people like Bobby or another huge influence as far as leading a band has been someone like John Clayton. Mm. And um, so, you know, Bobby would always write, as, as John Clayton does as well, he would always write on the part the person's name, never the instrument. And, uh, and Bobby did the same thing. So when you step into a rehearsal, um, you feel like you can be yourself. Your name's on your part. It's not just trumpet, you know, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. not just alto. <clears throat> so there's a certain aspect of, of, of commitment that's there, you know. Um, and when you step there, you, you want to give 100% of who you are into that music. And, and Bobby would always say, you know, what, what makes the band are five people, 
horizon. You know, my name may be there, but what's going to make our sound is all of us being who we are. And from the beginning, he's always told me that. He says, you know, if you if you want to lead a band, he goes, you can be the leader, but the band involvement and concept is only going to come out if you allow people to be themselves. And so, <clears throat> for my group now, it's it's all my friends. You know, mm -hmm. it's people that. Um, I've known for a while people that I share the same vision with, people that I share the same joy with. You know, we can all celebrate and we can laugh together and we respect one another. And I think that's what makes the music special. And I've gotten to do um, most of my records with, with these guys. And it's, it's a really, really um, inspiring venture to, mm -hmm. to play with these musicians. So when I approach the music uh, for this Lee Morgan project, it's, it's been really interesting because... Um, being in Philadelphia as much as I am, um, I hear about Lee Morgan all the time, all the time. Um, and when I joined Shirley Scott's band, coming from a classical world, she'd always tell me, she goes, you know, baby, you know, when you play, it's okay, but you need to spit more. And I said, spit? <laughs> you know? She goes, yeah, Lee Morgan used to spit. You know, uh, I could almost see firecrackers coming out of his belt. You know, you need to spit more. And so, um... I equated that, you know, I said, okay, spit. And then I thought about it, and there was this bass player who played with Shirley as well. And I said to him, I said, so, so Arthur, man, can you help me out? What Shirley says I need to spit more. He goes, man, you need to work on your time. You need to, you know. He goes, I can't explain it, but let's do this. He goes, why don't we get a gig every Saturday? And we got this gig playing nursing homes. We played three nursing homes a day, and we did this for a few months, just bass and trumpet. And he did it for me to help me work on my time help me work on my lines, help me to hear <clears throat> harmony. And, and then he would talk about the whole thing about spinning and articulation. Man, you know, you used to hear Lee. Man, Lee used to tear up some marches, man. He loved marches. <laughs> and, you know, Clifford Brown loved marches as right. well. So, you know, both of them loved marches and explains, like, their articulation and, and how personal it was to them. And um, so, you know, listen to that. I love, I love Lee's passion. I love his compositions. Um, but I love his fire, you know. Mm -hmm. And everything that he played, there was an element of the blues in. Everything, you know. And so even, like, moments notice, it's soulful. You know, when mm -hmm. he, so everything he, he touched was, there was, you could feel that, that presence there. And it's something, like, even now as a teacher, it's hard to, to explain emotion. It's hard to um, get emotion out of people. So that's been my goal as a teacher. How can I, you know, it's easy to talk about the tangibles, the harmony, the theory, you know, that's in books, you know. Mm -hmm. But how can you get spirit and soul? How can you pull that from people? And how can you pull that out of players as a leader, you know? How can you possess what your concept and your vision in a player without having to explain it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, and, I've, and I've, that's kind of been my quest as well. So this Lee Morgan project was great, you know. It, it started, the reason it came about <clears throat> is that I had a trumpet student at Temple, um, who had an awful accident that happened mm -hmm. to him. And uh, someone hit him and destroyed his, his face, just destroyed it. He called me like at 3 in the morning, and he shows me this picture of his face. And I'm like, ah, you know, queasy. I'm like freaking out, like, oh, my God. So he's a mess, and he went home. Um, and uh, his name's Danny Giannacucci. He went home, and... You know, let everything heal, and he came back to school, and he's just, he's like, man, I can't play. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I said, hey, I got to do this Lee Morgan concert, you know. If you want to, you know, do some research and, you know, mm -hmm. transcribe some things for me, that would be great. This cat comes back with, like, all these tunes, like, you know, like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> you know. Kick back with a pina colada now, you know. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> and he's a, he's been a great friend been a great friend since then, great student, and all this music was there, and we did this concert um, to a sold-out crowd uh, three or four years ago in Philadelphia, and after that, you know, I've been getting emails, Lee Morgan, you need to do Lee Morgan, Lee Morgan, Lee Morgan, you got to do Lee Morgan, got to do Lee Morgan, so here it is. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, well, good. Best of luck with the project. I know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, my son Zach and I heard you at the Vanguard uh, last spring is killing, so I'm, oh. I can't wait to hear the, the CD as well, so we'll oh, all thanks. look for that. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned Temple, and uh, you are a distinguished professor of jazz there, as well as being the uh, chair of the instrumental um, studies. Um, can you talk about, you've built that program into a 
powerhouse now, and you have great faculty and great students. The ensembles are great. Um, I, I get the sense from you, you have a lot of passion in everything you do, and you hear it in your playing, and I'm sure you bring that same, same amount of passion and energy to being a great educator. But um, is there, do you, do you consciously put on a different hat when you go to run the program, or how, how, how have you kind of built that program into what it is and, and what your approach to education might be? Um, <clears throat> well, you know, my approach to education is pretty much was pretty much provided to me by mother, my mother, who was a great teacher. And uh, I remember coming home to dinner every day. She'd always say, you know, I'm so exhausted. I've given everything I mm -hmm. can give. Mm -hmm. That was kind of her, her vibe. Like, I've given it all, you know. It's ne I, I need to get some rest so I can wake up tomorrow and give it all. And I remember <clears throat> when I started at Temple, I walked into a big band rehearsal, and there were like seven people, you know, there for my first rehearsal. I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know. And uh, I'd never led a big band before, and I was teaching classes that I'd never taught before. So I said, you know, I'm going to call people who've done it. So I called David Baker. Mm -hmm. I was like, can you help me? I need to, I need to, you know, I need to do this big band. Um, they have some charts, but, you know, can you help me out? And he gave me some words of wisdom. and. You know, I'm doing this improv, so he, he just gave me all this information. So I came back and I started to call people and get more information. Like, you know, what can I do? What can I do? How do you do? What do you do? And all these people gave me information, and, and uh, I started, you know, first just putting a big band together, trying to get, you know, 16 pieces there. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I got that together, and as that got together, you know, people would hear the band, and it got better and better, and students would want to come to the school, and... and um, I wanted to, to bring in folks to the department, not only that were already there, but I wanted to bring in folks from New York who were, you know, playing in a different place, not a better or worse place in Philadelphia, but playing in a, in a different place, and they could come and inspire not only the students, but other faculty, you know? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> by me bringing in, I think one of the first New York guys that I brought in was, was Bruce Barth. Mm. And Bruce Barth came in and... Um, you know, she came in, there was a faculty recital. Students heard him. Faculty heard him. Wow, this dude, you know. And so slowly but surely getting New York folks and hiring folks from Philadelphia and getting this, this mixture of people who are, are great educators but want to invest their time into the students. So, I, I mean, in a lot of ways I want, I, I want to say, oh, man, it was me that did this, but it really wasn't. It was, uh, it was me that... Um, wanted to do everything I could for my students. Mm -hmm. And if a student came to me and said, you know, man, you know, I'm not really getting too much of this. I said, okay, let me work on that. So, um, you know, it's exciting for me. We just added jo uh, jazz violin as a major. Oh, wow. And we have two majors now, and uh, that's pretty exciting. So, and, and three years ago, <clears throat> they put me in charge of the instrumental program. Um, and, you know, I've been director of jazz for, I don't know, maybe 15 years or something like that. Uh, so th it all came about, you know, I played this crossover piece with the, with the orchestra and a combo from Tempo and it, it Grammy got nominated for Grammy. And so the dean's like, man, it was really great to see you work with the jazz students and the classical students. I said, well, my background is all classical. I mean, I have a passion for what they do and a respect for what they do and a respect for the Philadelphia Orchestra members who teach it. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, I open my big mouth and bam. You're chair of the program, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> but it's been incredible. I mean, to sit and have, you know, lunch with Bruce Barth or Tanya Darby or Dick Oates, who teaches there, and then to go have dinner with David Bilger, you know, <clears throat> right. it's like, oh, yeah. it's like a dream come true, you know, mm -hmm. it's like I'm in the best of both worlds around all this incredible talent. So I think my concept of teaching and education is based on the same thing I do as a player, you know, bring about you know, make those around us feel like they're important. Like, you know, I, I need you to make this happen, which I really do. And, and you know, give me what you think was going to make this program special. And when people give feedback, I do my best to listen mm -hmm. and make mm -hmm. it happen so that they feel like they're invested into the program and, and it'll, it'll grow. So it's been really great to do the, the instrumental program and uh, to get to know that side of things that I used to be in contact with, but not so much now. Yeah, it's awesome. Great. Well, that's. Uh, I think you're uh, you're uh, very humble about how how much you've contributed to it. Because certainly, uh, being the 
the CEO of the of the program there is is very important, and you're leading it. And uh, and I, I I don't know. I just took from what you just said something very important is the humility of you asking somebody else for their input and mm. listening. And is the other big uh, huge thing, um, which is certainly an extension of being a musician. You know, it, it's the fact that you're willing to go to other folks to help your program. That's a huge thing because a lot of a lot of teachers may or may not have that, and, and I think it's an important. Uh, Important quality to have humility to, to be able to accept information that's out there from great educators like Pete mentioned David Baker, of course. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's staying in the Philadelphia theme. Maybe we could talk a little bit about um, how the the Jazz Orchestra of Philadelphia came about, and and I know you mentioned it earlier in the interview, but uh, where it's going and and what your plans are uh, with that organization. Um, well, you know, um, I never envisioned a position like this but I have to say um, for what it's about and where it's going I hope I can lead it there and I hope um, people can see the direction and help support that it, but it's tough it's very humbling um, you know uh, I have a new respect for the development people at Temple now mm. um, you know they come into meetings and and faculty and staff kind of beat the development people down. Why aren't you raising enough money? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? We need more scholarship, blah, blah, blah. And the development folks are like, please, you know, we're, you know, so it's so easy to sit on one side and place blame and just point. But oftentimes when people point, they forget there's like three fingers pointing right back at them. You know, it's like, you want more money for scholarship? You get out and recruit, mm -hmm. you know? You, you, everything that you want us to do, you know, invest in it yourself. And uh, I've always tried to do that at Temple, <clears throat> but then with the Jazz Orchestra, it's really been incredible for me. Um, and I talked to Wynton about this. This is probably the hardest thing about leading the band. The music is fantastic, you know, putting together a concert and, you know, the musicians are incredible and, you know, going through a concert and hearing everybody play is so fulfilling. But then I step outside of that and all the administrative things, it's like, okay, how do we raise money for next year? How do we do this? That's the most humbling mm -hmm. and, um, I mean, it keeps me awake at night. You know, that mm -hmm. keeps me awake at, at night. Um, you know, how am I going to get support? Do I want to disappoint the city? Do I want to disappoint the players? No. And, you know, my wife, bless, bless her heart, she helps me with grants. She writes grants. So mm -hmm. tomorrow morning we have to go meet a person who wants to give money for, you know, that a grant we applied for at 9 a.m. So that'll be great, you know, after the Vanguard tonight. <laughs> hey, yeah, I'll give it. So, but, you know, um, and, and for the orchestra, I've been getting, you know, help from different people to support it and some grants, and, and musicians are great. Um, and, I, and I really, when they came to me to do it, I thought, you know, when I came to Philadelphia, it was such a vibrant jazz town. And it, it's kind of lost some of the vibrancy just because there's not many places to play. And uh, there's not many places for musicians to get out and express themselves. So it's turned a little dark. So, mm. And then there's two universities in town. And, you know, they've kind of pitted against one another. So with this orchestra, you know, it's the community. As much as the community, you can involve with 16 people, you know, inside of this group. And playing the music of Philadelphians with Philadelphians, you know, in Philadelphia. And hopefully um, the orchestra will get out and travel more. Um, once people start to hear more about it. Um, and I'm hoping that um, we can do more educational outreach. We just did a, a workshop um, that was really touching for me to, to have students from our community group come in and work side by side with the orchestra members. And, you know, it's great for them. You know, the, the director told me, he goes, man, my students needed this. He goes, as a teacher, I've kind of lost steam. I didn't know what to do to motiva motivate my students. I'm sitting in rehearsals and Purses are kind of dead, and the students are like, whatever. But, you know, this kind of mentorship helped to rejuvenate them. And so I want to keep that going. I want, I want people to get out in the community and, and help revive uh, the youth movement mm. for jazz, help revive the education movement. You know, as a teacher, um, the hardest thing is to say, I can't do this. I want to teach these students, but I can't do this. And so I want to give teachers an opportunity to say, I can't do this, please help, in a private setting where some of these great educators and, and teachers can come in and say, here's how you're going to teach this rhythm section of play, here's how you're going to teach improvisation, here's how you're going to teach section playing, you know, here's how you're going to teach the history of the music. Mm -hmm. So I want to be able to provide that, you know, for the, for the city of Philadelphia. And of course, 
in time we're building our repertoire. I want to be able to record some of that music. You know, Mr. Heath is a huge supporter. Mm. You know, I love him so much. And he's just given so much music to the band. And we just had you know, Jimmy Heath, um, Bootsy Barnes, who's a great Philadelphia legend, and another guy, Larry McKenna, mm. to do uh, called the Three Tenors. And we had some music written for the three of them, and they came down and played with the orchestra um, this past week, and it was sold out. And, you know, it's it's really touching, that aspect. And as soon as the concert's over, it's like, okay, the next concert's May 9th. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's like right. you, you don't have a minute to enjoy what just happened because you're, like, thinking about the next and planning for the next and how can this one be as interesting as the last, you know, mm -hmm. and everyone's like, oh, how can it be better? For me, it's not really better. I just want to make each concert interesting, you know, a challenge for the musicians and a challenge for the listeners to help us all grow. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. Well, continued success with that organization. That's very important work you're doing there on that Thanks. level as well. And, you know, the very few people that can, can wear all those hats, you know, went and obviously um, – top of the heap I mean, what he does but you you're doing the same thing in philadelphia which is it's, uh, um, really uh, commendable it's amazing amazing work with your unique perspective as as a uh, world-class performer composer educator and now as a managing an arts organization both from the artistic side and the business side in a in a kind of general way where do you see the state of the music the state of jazz and and where do you see it going? How, how do you feel about it going forward at this point? I feel I feel great. Um, you know, it depends what circle you're in. I mean, they're always naysayers. You know, there's always people that are gonna say, "Oh, this orchestra will never take off. You'll never get a gig." You know, it's so hard. But you know, um, I mean, I've been extremely blessed to 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 work a lot, and and it's great because it, it's it's uh, provided me a challenging life. Mm -hmm. and enjoying but challenging life. Uh, and I think there are opportunities out there for anyone who wants to make them. I mean, we can all sit at home and complain and whine, but there's there's opportunity. It may not be doing exactly what we want to do or what we saw that we would do, you know, when we were that big, but there's opportunity, you know, and that's what I said in the interview before we started the interview to you. I mean, you know, a fabulous player as yourself, but there's so much that you do, designing horn, doing the show. It's like, you know, we find ways to um, to fulfill the desires we have inside of us. We don't know. I mean, I'm sure you didn't know you'd be sitting here when you were 15 <laughs> or 16, but, you know, what you're giving to so many people um, and the investment that you're making, the investment that you're making, you know, is really important to, to this music. And so mm -hmm. just sitting here now, to me, is an investment to the future because I know people who watch this or people who watch the last one you did with Chris Gecker or Conrad Herwig or the other great artists you've had on your show, and they're going to listen to this and someone's going to become inspired and say, man, you know, I want to be like that, or man, I want to, I want to, you know, and that's, that's what it's about. So for me to sit here is, is, is a great feeling. I, that's, I know now that, yeah, you know, that this whole music world, this whole education world, this whole performance, everything is being perpetuated in a positive way by what you're doing. You know, when I when I go look at Winton and I see all the work he's doing and how expansive these programs are, that oh, it's unbelievable. That's super encouraging. Um, I do something at Temple called, uh, um, it's called a Regional Jazz Fest. And um, we bring in about 14 bands to the school and the bands perform and Lincoln Center partners, up, partners with us to do mm -hmm. this. And when I first started doing it, I was having a hard time trying to get five or six bands. Now we're getting like 20 bands that apply. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can only choose 14. And they come in for a day and it's like all these kids that are there and hungry, they want to go to an improv workshop. They want to go to a, a saxophone workshop. They want, they're hungry, you know. So with all this hunger there uh, and the more people that are supporting this, I think, I think jazz and music arts is in a great direction I just went to hear the Philadelphia Orchestra um, the principal is Ricardo Morales and he's oh, playing sure. Rossini and the WC right so I got to the concert and uh, you know Verizon Hall it's pretty full but not quite full and I looked around and I said wow I said I wish there were more people I swear after I said this there was a mad rush of young people that came <laughs> in they call them rush tickets they provide for young people to get these discount mm. tickets and this it was like uh 
you know, what's it called? The the Ark, you know, you know, <laughs> it was like all these students were like, you know, like giraffes and all those. It was like this file of students down the aisles filling up every seat. You know, by the time they came in for the first note, you know, um, the, the orchestra, it, it was like full. And they played Tchaikovsky 4, which is one of my favorites. So I had to go. And it was inspiring to sit there and look and say, wow, it's 2,500 people in this room. And like 30, 40 percent are young people. Mm. That's killing, you know? That is killing, yeah. It's just killing, and it's so inspiring. And this, the JLP concert, I love looking out in the audience and, and seeing young people everywhere, you know, fired up. So I feel good about it. Mm. I feel good about um, the arts. And when some, you know, people call me and say, can you do a workshop or a clinic? You know, of course we have to say, well, what's the, what are the finances? But, you know, we can all make things work for the sake of giving. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and if we all are in giving like this, then... There's always going to be opportunity, mm -hmm. always. That's great. Well, you have such a uh, positive, uh, proactive approach to everything ever since I've known you. I think the first time we played together was on Bob Minster's band <laughs> way back when. But um, you always, even that first time I met you, you just have a very proactive and positive energy, and I think that's the key in, in addition to men's talent and everything else. But that, you know, you see that, you know, from, and that's what's going to guide the music. And, and, and it is great to see that young people are... Uh, are influenced by that and mm -hmm. uh, affected by that. Um, Terrell, is, as we wind down today, first of all, thank you again for taking time out. I know your schedule is, as we've gone over, it doesn't get any busier, and, uh, and you're off to the vanguard when we finish up here. But if you were to capsulize down, if there's a young person out there who uh, might be interested in going to Temple, might be interested in being the next Terrell Stafford, uh, whatever it might be, if you had a, one, one or two pieces of advice for a young person who's looking to go into music, what, what might that be? Um, investment. Um, <clears throat> you know, you walk down Wall Street and you see these, these guys running around like crazy, you know, filthy rich, managing their money, but have no joy or fulfillment, you know. Mm -hmm. I see these <clears throat> blank faces when I walk down there. It's just the weirdest thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with what we do, you know, if, if we take a time out of our day to invest in what we love, you know, that could be practice, that could be listening, that could be whatever, whatever it takes to get us invested in what we do and, and do that and make, you know, I'm a, I'm a very, very structured person, which is a pro and it's a con, you know. So, you know, um, but I make notes, I write my goals down. You know, I write down what I want to do. I write down where I want to be. I write down, you know, by the time I'm X years old, this is what I want in my life. And that's how I've led my life since I was young. And partly it's because of my parents. My dad is very goal-oriented. He's very organized. So I would say for young people, invest in, in, in what you want to be. If you want to be a musician, do things that are going to, you know, work on your sound, work on your technique, you know, listen to the recordings, you know, study those recordings if that's really what you want to be. If you tell someone, man, I'm so into Charlie Parker, then I should hear Charlie Parker inside <laughs> of your plan, and, you know, not like Kenny G, which is cool, but, you know, I should hear the person that you say is, is who you want to be like, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's really, really important. So invest in, invest in who you are. Invest in what you want to be. And, and, and people talk about networking. You know, I'm not such a fan of networking. I'm a fan of, of hard work and labor. Mm -hmm. If you practice, if you go out and hear the music, if you go out and support people that you love to hear and, and listen to music that, you, that moves you and you express that, that passion you have to the people that you hear, opportunities will come. You know, people aren't dumb. You know, if someone comes up to you and they say, you know, you know, Mr. Davis, man, I love your playing. And you see that person on Tuesday, and you play Thursday, and that same person is like, Mr. Davis, <laughs> I love your playing. You're going to be like, dude, let's hang out, man. This is like the second time I've seen you. And if that keeps happening, and they don't, they just come out and, and, and just support you, you're going to want to give. You're going to say, man, let's, let's hook up. Yeah. You know, what are you into? Let's, let's, let me take you to lunch, or let's, let's meet at Euphoria. Yeah, let's, you know. And, and, and you want to give, and that student will sit there and, and they'll tear it up, you know. And that's how the relationships begin. And then as time goes, you know, you may be doing a, a show or Bob Menser, and you say, wow, Bob, uh, uh, I can't make this rehearsal, but I got this cat that I've been mentoring for. He'll be great, you know. And, sure. and that's how it works. So 
invest, invest mm -hmm. now, and you know you'll you'll reap the benefits later. Yeah, well said, well said. Once again, Terrell, thank you so much for uh, spending time. I hope uh, I hope everybody got as much out of this as I did. I just I'm energized being around this gentleman, <laughs> and uh, and definitely check out Brotherly Love coming out uh, in May. Uh, fantastic record. I can't wait to hear it myself. And uh, we look forward to seeing all of you next time on Bone to Pick.